May we and all beings maintain the flame of practice. May we and all beings illuminate our minds. May we and all beings liberate our hearts. Good morning again, everyone. We're starting to bring this series on the engaged Buddhist precepts to a close over the next few weeks. A series that we've styled as concerned with specific ways in which we can put our practice into action, take our practice off of the cushion and out into the world. We've said often that the precepts raise dilemmas for us in our daily lives and how we work with those dilemmas, how they roll us, roll them into our practice has been our focus for several months now. How do we observe the precept of not killing or cultivating and sustaining life when it seems like everything we do, no matter how well-intentioned, results in the loss of life? How do we accept and work with our anger instead of trying to sidestep it or suppress it, recognizing that it's just part of our being as humans to at times get angry? And our discussions, our exploration of these precepts have brought us insight, moments of enlightenment, what's called prajna in Sanskrit and on which so much attention is often focused. Over tea, you might be sitting there wrestling with a difficult relationship in your life. What do I do about this? Why is this person so difficult? Why is it that when we get together, there's a real friction between us? What am I supposed to do? And then somebody says something and your perspective shifts by just two degrees. And all of a sudden, something that you couldn't see before, something that you were blind to is now in view. And you go, oh, I get it. That's why I'm having a hard time with this person. And now I have something that I can work with. That we can only see things as we see them from who and where we are at any given time is beautifully put by Dogen, the founder of our Soto Zen lineage, in the Genjo Koan, a writing that we've referenced often, Dogen's presentation of Zen practice to a layperson. Dogen writes that when you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean, where no land is in sight, for some reason boats are often in Dogen's imagery. And view the four directions from where you are, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety 
we like to put things in boxes, categorize things. This thing is that. It's round, it's square, it's a triangle, it's a rhombus. But the world, just like the ocean that Dogen is describing here, has features that are infinite in variety. It is like a palace, it is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. Only given who and where you are in this moment, and all things are like this. All things without exception. So again, this shifting, these moments of insights, realizations of prajna in our lives are so terribly important because they remind us that things only look as they are in this moment and will look different from another perspective in another moment. But prajna, but wisdom, but insight is not enough. The illumination of the mind is not enough. And I have some reason to think that the tradition is aware of this. Last week, we heard Mado talk about the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree. And Mado suggested that Buddha's awakening was not just from the eyebrows up or the ears up or the shoulders up. You can pick your favorite phrase. It was his whole being that woke up. According to one version of the story, upon seeing the morning star, the Buddha said, I and all beings in the great earth awaken together. Today during service, we read the Loving Kindness Sutra. And the first part of this sutra describes a kind of character that I think we'd all like to cultivate, have be the fruit of our practice. And the kind of character that's described there, someone who's strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous, and so on, is not someone who's obsessed with being right, the kind of thing for which wisdom and wisdom alone might be incredibly useful. but someone who's chosen to be free. Another sutra that we sometimes read on Sundays is the Heart of Perfect Wisdom Sutra. It's the delivering of a teaching on perfect wisdom to Shariputra, one of the Buddha's disciples. But the teaching isn't delivered by the Bodhisattva of wisdom. It's not delivered by Manjushri. It's delivered by Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. It's 
the bodhisattva of compassion that delivers the teaching on the perfection of wisdom. It's very interesting. So what I want to suggest this morning is that along with the illumination of the mind needs be the liberation of the heart. Along with wisdom, what's needed is compassion. At times over the past few weeks, we've talked about this Japanese word shin. It's the second half of my Buddhist name, Taishin. Sometimes it's translated as heart, sometimes it's translated as mind, implying a separation between the two, but we've also noted that you can translate it as heart mind, that these two things are not separate, that it's one system, even if we might talk about them as separate. And I was reminded of an interaction I had with a customer. Some of you know I work retail these days. It was an older Irish woman that I was assisting, someone who I wouldn't have expected to know anything about Buddhism at all. And as I'm helping her finding something, I don't know, a certain kind of butter, it doesn't matter. She looks at me and she says, oh, I love your ears. Those are Buddha's ears, you know. You know about the Buddha? <laughs> he taught wisdom, compassion. They go together. <laughs> and I'm like flying at this point. Because <laughs> one, like I never get compliments. In fact, sometimes people see me and they're terrified by my ears. That's a story for another time. Right? So I'm getting compliments. It's about my ears. The Buddha's involved. Love and compassion is involved. And I smile and I laugh a little bit and say, yeah, I've heard about the Buddha. I know who that guy is. Help her along with whatever else she needs. Thank her, let her know she needs anything. Just find me. And as she's walking away, she turns, oh, and such a nice smile, too. <laughs> and I was set for like the next day. <laughs> Buddha's ears. This liberation of the heart is less or not at all about what we come to understand from practice. It's more about what we realize we cannot understand, what we cannot know. And it seems to me it's helped along by humility, by being humble which is not the same as humiliation, but it took a long time for me to understand that. By being right-sized, as it's sometimes put. We've talked about conceit quite a bit over the last few months. And typically, at least when I thought of being conceited, I thought of being very puffed up, overestimating myself. I can do it all. 
But if it was just meek little old me, hi, that wasn't being conceited. Thinking less than I actually am, that's not being conceited. But our root teacher, Koben Chinoroshi, says that it is. In a rather bold way, he writes that if you don't think that your life is just as valuable as the life of the Buddha, that's a kind of conceit. Being right-sized, or better yet, by taking our place, by being, as Dogen writes elsewhere, an accoutrement, a beautiful ceremonial adornment of the entire world in the ten directions. We're like beautiful earrings on the world. Another way of putting this that comes from a Dharma teacher I rather like, this is Ben Connolly, the teacher at the Minnesota Zen Center, reads, we sit on a tiny stone in the middle of an incomprehensibly vast universe with no idea of what aspects of the universe we may not even have thought to look for or imagine or seek out because they are out of the range of our limited senses and our tiny stream of little thoughts. And we find ourselves so convinced that we are right and we know what's going on. I haven't talked with Ben about this passage, but his repeated use of tiny and little here is not meant to, not meant, I think, to make you feel smaller than you actually are, but just remind you of where you are and how much that is so beyond what we're capable of accessing. It's not to say that you cannot know anything or that what you do understand is insignificant only that there is a whole vast mystery that we are all a part of, and that much of it is always going to be beyond our intellectual understanding. And that's okay. That's okay. When you start to appreciate how much is beyond our grasp, how much we just really don't know, I think this can be a real gateway towards opening your heart towards others. And the sometimes unskillful ways that they might find themselves interacting with you. In another life, I used to be on a college campus with many young people who seemed to walk around like this, <laughs> constantly staring at a screen that apparently is very exciting. Can't figure out why. 
And occasionally we would bump into one another as we're rushing to and from wherever it is we're going. And I would get angry when they would bump into me, turn around, see the person, maybe they haven't even acknowledged that they bumped into me, they're just blazing ahead. Where they too and go like, sorry. There's no compassion, there's no understanding, there's no acceptance of that. For me, I'm angry. Maybe I don't say anything to them, I don't verbalize my frustration, but inside there's certainly a narrative running. Why I oughta. But then I started thinking about what if the same sort of thing were to happen. I'm walking somewhere, there's a person walking in the opposite direction, they bump into me. I maybe stumble, try and regain my footing, turn around. And I don't see someone staring into their phone or someone who seems to be visibly frustrated, maybe having a hard day and chooses to take it out on me by lowering their shoulder just a little bit as they cross me. And I see someone who's blind who appears to be blind. Big sunglasses, perhaps, got their walking stick in front of them. I can tell you that I wouldn't get angry at that person. I don't think I would pity them either. Because they're not helpless. Maybe they've got their seeing eye dog, they've got their stick. I hear studies that say that those who lose or are born without a sense, their other sentence are heightened in order to compensate. My response would be one of compassion and understanding because I would see quite clearly that they're doing the best they can with what's available to them. And that sometimes despite their best efforts, they're gonna bump into me. I'm gonna bump into them. In the past, I used to think there was a great deal of difference between myself and someone who's blind with respect to their vision. I'm starting to think that's no longer the case. Over the last several months, we've talked about the three poisons greed, anger, ignorance. We've talked about the five hindrances, attachment, aversion, restlessness, boredom, doubt. And the eight worldly dharmas of pleasure and pain and fame and obscurity and praise and blame and loss and gain. All of these things are present in all of our lives and they can cause our vision to be a little clouded, a little murky. It can be hard for us at times to see what the skillful action in some moment is. And so we may act unskillfully towards ourselves, towards others. We too, are doing the best we can with what's available to us. 
We have the teachings, beliefs and values that are central to the narratives we tell about ourselves. We have a Sangha that we can lean on in challenging times. And indeed, Mado says, we're all walking through this great mystery together. I just happen to be the one holding the flashlight. Thank you, Mado. <laughs> we too are doing the best we can with what's available to us, trying to navigate this world while wrapped up in delusion and ignorance as well as possible. So not only is there not a lot of separation, it seems to me, between ourselves and someone who might be blind with respect to their vision. But there's not a lot of separation between us and the hurried, seemingly distracted student rushing to their final exam. Or the person that might be in a fight with their partner and not know how to process that anger and frustration in a skillful way. Some months ago, I told a story in which there's a young man named Bryce that plays an important role. Most of you know I'm in recovery. And a turning point for me in that journey was when I was leading a guided meditation and this young man, Bryce showed up. It was a loving kindness meditation. And he was crying during the meditation, not an unusual thing for people to do, but he was really crying. And at the end of it, when people had an opportunity to share, he said, thank you. It's the first time in the 19 years of my life that I've ever said I love myself. was a transformative moment for me and I revisit it often in the narrative I tell about it shifts. And where I'm at now is that because I was in a place where there was so much I didn't know, willing to accept that each and every one of us was doing as well as we possibly could with what was available to us in that moment, there wasn't a separation between he and I any longer. He was sitting across from me, I could see him over there but I saw myself in him at that moment. And I saw him in me in that moment. And at the meeting of these two individuals, my heart opened just a little bit more. Just a little bit more.
So my suggestion to you today, my offering to you today, is that wisdom is not enough. Prajna is not enough. Just as important as illuminating the mind is liberating the heart, helping it to break open for ourselves and for all beings. Thank you. Thank you.